Hi everyone, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast with Mark Groves. This really felt like a big moment for me and it was such an honour to chat to him. If you love this podcast, I would so appreciate you rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference to me and it would mean a lot. Hello and welcome back to the Move and Inspire podcast with me, Sophie Deer where I chat to inspiring thinkers and leaders who will empower people like you and me to live a healthier and happier life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Move and Inspire podcast. I'm a little nervous, but over the moon that today I'm actually chatting to Mark Groves. Mark is a human connection specialist and has had the most profound effect on my life. So, hey, Mark. Hello. What a beautiful intro that is to, to be able to hear um, the influence or possibility that uh, speaking one's truth can inspire someone else's. Um, so I have a lot of gratitude for that. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think you're like really modeling that for me as well, because it's something a lot of what you're sharing, I'm now sharing to my audience and have seen such an incredible response um obviously sharing it in a way that's like my story as well and it's Mm -hmm. a a lot of what you've given me is this framework to understand myself so that I can share my story in hopefully um a a really helpful way so yeah thank you so much yeah isn't that the beautiful thing about uh teaching and being a student like they're always ongoing uh you know I learned and continue to learn in in tell it through the lens to which I live as you're doing with your experience and people relate to different stories in different ways and hear themselves in them in some and not in others. And it's such a gift. It's such a gift. And it's a brave thing to live your transformation out loud. You know, you're sort of uh, a caterpillar in a cocoon talking about what it's like to be in the cocoon and then what it's like to be a butterfly and then what it's like to be a cocoon. And I sort of are a caterpillar. And I sort of always think about that, that you're like always in every stage at every moment. Um, and there's some things that are still works in progress. And there's some things that you're kicking ass at. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a humbling experience to be human. Definitely. And incredibly healing as well for me to have been able to start to share my story. And I don't know if you found this sometimes I'm like, is this the right time? Am I, am I sharing too early when I'm still in all the difficulty and the mess and uh, it feels incredibly vulnerable. I don't know if you've had that, like, oh. yeah, that journey of like, oh, do I, do I talk about this right now? Or like, should I talk <laughs> about this when I'm like way more healed, you know? You know, it's so true. I, I remember doing a podcast episode uh, recording when I was like literally in the depths of the breakup that I had with Kylie and oh my Lord. I just remember like recording it, sobbing on the recording, sending it to um, my, my guy, Aaron, who edits it. And I was like, just remove the long sobs because they're private. But I had these like this vulnerability sort of hangover moment of like, is this too much? And, uh, you know, it was like one of the most listened podcasts I've ever had. And that continues to happen when I'm like, questioning whether I should do something that I'm sort of reaffirmed that 
you know, I think we all want to be validated or witnessed in the storm, not in the resolution yet. So we could see ourselves in each stage of the story. And what's so beautiful about what you're doing is that there's someone who's where you're at. There's someone who's then following your story along as you're figuring it out, as they're figuring it out. I always think of like, sometimes I'm a chapter ahead of people and sometimes there's a chapter up behind. Sometimes I'm a page ahead or behind. And it's, I think in, in writing it and sharing it as you're going through it, it really is just, uh, it just validates the human experience. Yeah, and also I think it's so easy to bounce, right? You can feel like you've made some steps and then something happens, something triggers you and you're back again, you're <laughs> back in it and it's painful and difficult. And something I did um, really recently was a solo podcast episode and that was like huge for me. It was very scary hey, to do, awesome. but I'm really pleased I did it. Um, and yeah, I, one of the things that I think people really took from that, I was saying to people how it's so normal to feel incredibly happy, but also really sad at the same time. And that is something that I've really had to learn through this journey. Mm -hmm. Like I would have questioned that before, like, how can I hold space for both? And actually that just is a really normal thing. Cause we are bouncing back and forth a lot. Yeah. That, that. Ability, as uh, Alexandra Salman talks about, to be both and, you know, to have all this complexity to, you know, I think we're often living in these spaces that, like, even if you're getting married or you're in a relationship and you're like, I'm really excited and I'm scared or and I'm anxious about what's to come or whatever it is. I mean, that's so normal. That's so normal. And I think when we, I remember listening to this teacher at a positive psychology conference, and he was also trained in Buddhism. And he said, uh, every time you say I am, like I am sad, I'm angry, I'm whatever, you become it. Like you take a brick and you place it in this space. And it means that you can't at the same time be anything else or say I am not that thing. Like you've, you've built a foundation that you now must be committed to. And I always remember that it was so resonant because I thought, oh man, how often do we say I am something as opposed to, you know, I feel something or a part of me feels something or part of me is going through this. It just, I, I think it leaves more space within ourselves, which I think is a learned thing to create space within oneself for, as you said, these, like, you could be sad, deeply sad and deeply in love, you can be grieving the loss of a relationship. And, and that actually at the same moment is actually love. Like, you know, you hear so many people say when they go through a breakup, I'll never love again. Well, you know, or love doesn't exist, or I don't believe in it. And it, the irony is that the very thing that makes them not believe in it is the very proof of, it, of its existence, which is sort of a strange thing to come to terms with. Um, I started to see that heartbreak was evidence of, of being open that it was just like I, I started to realize that you can as you're loving someone and falling in love with them or anything um, it could be chocolate and you're also experiencing the pain of its loss you know you kind of think about it as like eventually that sandwich that you love will be over and that's true of all things eventually life will be over eventually a relationship will be over um, whether you die, they die, or you both die, or the relationship ends within this lifetime, you're always grieving 
and Stephen Jenkinson, who's uh, sort of like a guide to mortality, worked in um, in palliative care and and end of life care, and he was saying that to love anything, you must love the end. And and I loved that because it really speaks to uh, what just acknowledging that endings exist allows you to be present. Yeah. Wow, so much in that. Um, so I'd love to just kind of start, I suppose, in um, terms of like what led you to want to do this work? What, um, yeah, what drives you to, to, to want to help people within their relationships? You know, this work was probably fed from the same passions and desires that your work is fed from. Um, and I don't want to speak for you, uh, but mine was certainly led from my own not knowing, my own heartbreak, my own pain, my own lack of relational awareness. You know, I had a relationship end and that was really the first time that I thought, why am I so good at talking about things, but not my feelings? Like, that's not a skill set issue. The skill is there. There's something more going on. I thought, why didn't I speak my truth so much earlier? Why have I chosen my life sort of passively, you know, in a lot of ways, just done what I was supposed to do. And I think for a lot of us, that's true. We wake up in a moment that we've been taught to want and you realize you don't want it, or you realize that you have this feeling of like, there's more to life or uh, why do I feel guilty for having what I was taught to have? And then you realize you don't value it in the way you were taught that you should value it. And I think that offers these opportunities where you really, you know, I think the loss of anything realizes what you place your value in, what you place where you, um, where you've been taught that value exists as opposed to feeling what value means to you. Um, for me, wanting to learn about love and connection and how to make relationships work versus not, all of that was, being very frustrated with the fact that I didn't know and no one taught me. Like, I was like, why did no one teach me this? And I was really pissed off at first because I sort of woke up within the space of my story being like, well, first off, why have I not been consciously writing this story? And why have I been letting what someone told me my story should be, be my story. And that occurred at 27, you know, at 27, I'm now 42 turning 43 in November and it, it's been a, a continued uncovering. Um, and I even find that my passions are changing. My desire of what I want to speak about is changing. Um, but I also find that it all comes back to a relationship. You know, there's very few things that a human is motivated to change for, uh, really. You know, like think about how often we want to lose weight or we want to, but, you know, it's hard to give up gummy bears. It's hard to give up things. Um, but there's love and relating is one of those things that we are often more motivated to change the things or toxic or to really begin to explore healing or the defensive ways we block love or why we run from people who care about us and, and run towards people who run from us. You know, there's all these strange things we do in relationship. And I think they're probably the most common vehicle of opportunity to really get to know ourselves. And so I have a lot of gratitude for them, for relating in general. 
um, for the opportunity to be in a conversation like this one, because there's always something more uncovered, you know? Yeah, and um, I think something that was a real shock to me when I started doing your courses. So I started with the boundaries one. And for me, it was like, oh, I'm gonna learn all about how to say no. And I was like, oh, I've got to learn all about how to love myself. Like that was this big moment of realizing that so much of, of where I was going wrong, if that's the right way to say it, but was, was this lack of self-worth. And mm -hmm. so I think that um, what you're talking about this, when we talk about relationships, well, we're actually so often really talking about the relationship with ourselves and I think that for me was just such a, I had a breakdown moment. I remember I was going through this separation that has ended in a, a divorce. And I remember writing these emails and what I was really grieving for was this lack of self-worth. Like that was like mm. this real like painful moment. And so much of that was uncovered in a boundaries course, which to me was like such a, a different thing I thought I was going to learn totally different things you know how to say no so that I could do more effective work you know it was that kind of thing um yeah so I think that's so beautiful going back to the idea that relationships is just all about ourselves um and something it's just reminded me of I used to think that like, until I get my shit together, I can't be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to a podcast with Esther Perel and she was like, no, the best way to learn about yourself is be in a relationship. Right, what a mirror, what a mirror love is, especially to your limits, you know, like can, can you hit the edge of fear of uh, be in conflict and not shut down, not get defensive, keep your heart open, uh, but also have boundaries because, you know, there's this misconception that a boundary is all about no, it's all about, but boundaries are also about self-containment. They're about me not bulldozing, me having boundaries around my own values and my own behaviors. And, you know, as I'm sure you've heard me say before, boundaries really are about preserving wholeness. They're about drawing a circle around who you actually are. And if you've never had boundaries, um, then you often don't know who you are. It, usually yourself is defined by other or your life is about amalgamating to other being a chameleon um, or your values are actually just values you were taught or you, what you were taught to, was important or unimportant or that you weren't important. And so when we take this very brave step of saying no to something or yes to something or maybe to something, we're really saying I'm being discerning about the path of my life, about where I want to direct my energy, which is really saying I really care about who I am. And, you know, I think, as you said, we often, we often consider that a boundary is about this, you know, no. Uh, and it is sometimes about a no and a very assertive no. Uh, but put very simply, as you said, it, it really is about honoring the self. And also honoring that you're going to get that wrong. You know, the only way you know where to put a boundary is by putting it in the wrong place or drawing a wall where you needed a little more fluidity. Uh, and that's where that space of compassion for self really must come in. Because how can you love yourself if you're not compassionate to your suffering, to what you were taught that doesn't work? And so it's all this invitation to 
um, meet ourselves, I think, with just more and more grace. But this kind of like fierce grace, you know, the grace that says, I'm not going to stand for shit, but I'm not going to put up with any shit for myself either. Yeah, I think that's um, something that was so important to me with your boundaries course and the codependency one, because you, when you start to learn about this stuff, you look back at how you've been in relationships. And for me, it was so many different relationships that, um, that I was struggling with both of those things. And instead of looking back and feeling this guilt and, um, you know, yeah, shame around it. I think what you do really beautifully is give that compassion and allow, um, yeah, allow people to have real compassion for themselves and show that that's, that's just so important because yeah, this work is hard and it, and it does shine a light of some of the stuff that you've, you've really messed up on um, for want of a better way to say it. But, and like, yeah, I think for me having that compassion from you and also in the codependency course, Terry was just like monumental. Yeah. I mean, it's such a fascinating exploration because you think of like when you're learning about things like codependency and boundaries, which are obviously so interconnected, you start to see where you've had none and where you've been codependent. But then you start to look up your family tree and your society and your culture. And you're like, oh, well, no one's not doing this. You know, so it's such an act of rebellion in a lot of ways to individuate. And, you know, I think there's that, like we really required some level of interdependency that got muddied with codependency to survive for evolution. And so we sort of look at our parents' generation or our parents' parents or whatever it might be. And we're sort of like, why did you stay? Or why did you do this? Or why did you compromise your desires? And I think that could be especially true of, of women in the older generations. It might be true of the emotionality of men in older generations. Um, actually, that's for sure true too. And you just sort of see this level of self-abandonment that was just common um, and what an act of courage it is to go against what was taught, to go against, you know, because right, you could get real celebrated for being self-abandoning. You can get a good job about self-abandoning. You know, you can, you can become a coach or a therapist. You can become all these, any sort of um, caregiver, any healthcare worker. You know, there are often people who have really poor boundaries. And I say that having gone into the work and had poor boundaries. So, you know, it's not an accusation, but uh, um an acceptance as well. I just started to see it so much. I'm like, oh, you can monetize your lack of boundaries. You can monetize where you place your self-worth in helping other people, which when you think about it, a lot of people who are in those sort of rescuing, saving positions are people who had that role in their family. So they're even now reinforcing the very role that was part of their survival. So what a job it is to rescue ourselves and still have worth, even when we're not doing the doing that gave us worth. Oof, that's a, that's a sticky one to unstick. Yeah. It's something I would love to ask you because I feel like people get codependency confused and I just want to check that I've like in my head, <laughs> basically, I think people think often that it's to do with being like, um, fully dependent on someone in the sense that you need to be joined at the hip with them and you need to do everything with them. 
And for me, that's actually not how it's played out. I'm, I've always been quite a independent person. Mm-hmm. It was much more in terms of like my self-worth was based on what they thought of me and based on a lot of what my relationships thought of me. Um, so I, w- I wonder if you can clarify that or touch on that. Yeah, there's sort of two sides to it. One, uh, one side of it is the person in the relationship who likes to do the saving, the caretaking, the rescuing, the reading all the books, doing all the things. Um, you'll see that in someone who's in a relationship with an addict or someone who's highly manipulative or um, someone who's co- constantly got some sort of challenge or issue. And so they need to be needed and the other person needs so they can't survive without being supported, saved. So one person sort of identifies as the problem and the other person identifies as the solution to that problem. So both people's identity is tied up, one in being broken and the other one in fixing what's broken. And so that's why when you see, for example, an addict, when they get sober, you see the other person who's like finally been waiting for this moment oh, they quit the drinking, they quit the thing. And now they got nothing to do anymore. They're like, well, and they start to reel because they don't really know what to do with all their energy that has been going into trying to save someone else. So you might think that that focus on other is really a distraction from self, usually pain of not being enough, not being noticed that their value was in having to take care of their parent, take care of a a sibling, maybe their little brothers and sisters or whatever it might be. And the other person's worth um, is really more self-absorbed, not from a sense of maliciousness, but like that I'm a problem. And so without someone trying to fix me, who am I? And so they both require this deep dive into the creation and responsibility of worth for oneself. Um, And it's a courageous act to stop trying to save people. And it's also a courageous act to save yourself. And, and so the healing from both of them is this interesting turning within that is, you know, I think the struggle we all have is how do I be me and be in a relationship with you and me take responsibility for me and you take responsibility for you. And if you have an emotional response to me that you're responsible for your emotions and I'm responsible for mine, but I'm also responsible for the impact that my behaviors have on you. And how do I do all of that? and still hold on to who I am. I mean, that, I mean, that's the fucking work. That's the work of work. Uh, One that I'm constantly navigating, you know, on a more public profile, which you have as well, you know, there's emotional responses to the things I say. Well, as a recovering codependent, I want to desperately not have them feel that way or save them from that realizing when you're saving someone from their suffering or preventing them from an experience, which is different than me maliciously saying something, obviously. But when you're preventing someone from their experience, you're preventing them from their expansion. And I started to see that, like every moment that garnered the most growth in me was emotions that I was afraid to sit in. And I started to see too, that we try to save people from feelings that we don't know the transformational benefit of. So if I don't know how to sit in grief or aloneness or what would likely be loneliness at that point, then I will try to save someone from that experience. You know, I was thinking recently um, that I didn't want to share 
something with, I wanted to help a friend get something because I was afraid if they didn't get it, they would feel a certain feeling. And I had to catch myself in that moment of like, let them not get the thing, you know, which is different than them getting food or being able to pay rent or whatever it might be. But even then, if I'm continuously supporting someone in a way that saves them from what they need in order to be self-sufficient, um, I'm actually protecting them from the bottom they need. I heard Russell Brand say that. He said, every time you try to save someone from rock bottom, you scrape upon it. And I thought, isn't that so true? So you're saving them from the bottom, but you're literally living there. Um, and that's why being in any relationship with anyone who needs saving, ooh, is it hard to be like, actually, I'm done. The work, that's yeah. the work too. Yeah, so hard. How does this, because um, I know you've been doing a lot of um, stuff around attachment theory, which um, I've only just started to, like I listened to your podcast on it and I know I, I've been wanting to read the book for um, a long time. But um, yeah, from what I learned from that podcast, it almost sounds like these, um, the, the codependent behavior, mm -hmm. that sounds like very much like the avoidant and the anxious attachment yeah. types attracting one another. But just to go, I guess to go back to like, could you explain a bit about the different types and how, what I loved, um, is it Sylvie that, yeah, that you Sylvie. spoke to? Yeah, what I loved about what she said was like, just how having awareness of this can really help your relationship and not being like really fixed to these attachment styles, but just that awareness. And of course it always comes back to awareness, but I just wonder whether like, yes, starting by explaining what um, attachment theory is, the different types of attachment, and then maybe like an example of how being aware of this can help in a potential difficult situation. Yeah. So, you know, all of them are different ways of organizing human relating. So codependency is certainly overlaid with attachment theory. So you might learn something from one and be like, oh my God, that's mind blowing. That's exactly what I'm going through or what I've experienced or who I am or whatever it is. Uh, with attachment theory, the original research is from a guy named Jonathan Balby. What he did was he observed mom and baby interacting. So mom would leave the room and mom would come back and they'd see how the child interacted with mom. So the first one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby goes to mom. She, the baby's distressed, stays by mom's side. So you could sort of think like when mom leaves, I don't trust that she's going to come back. So a little more clingy, that's anxious attachment. Several one, second one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby reunites with mom and then goes back to play. So baby trusts mom, that's secure attachment. And the last one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, meh, I didn't really notice you were gone. It's not a big deal. I don't really care. And goes, stays playing, kind of ignores the experience. But physiologically, that baby's going through the same thing as the first one, anxious attachment. So maybe elevated heart rate, whatever it might be. And, and so it's sort of presenting this fear without showing the fear. You can see it's sort of like a disassociation. That's avoidant attachment style. And they're sort of split too. The avoidant is either dismissive or fearful. Fearful avoidance is usually someone who's experienced trauma, abuse, things like that. So they really do want relationship, um, but they don't trust it. You know, it's like, if I get close to you, you might hurt me. And dismissive avoidance is more 
uh, more sort of looks like high self-worth. It might be the behavior characteristics in a far extreme of what we would call a narcissist. Um, so it's like, I'm, when, I, when, when people are in relationship with me, they get too needy, you know, that kind of feeling. Or you might know it relating when you're like dating someone and they just seem unavailable. They seem kind of like as soon as you tell them you like them, they run. As soon as you have sex, they pull away. That's sort of a kind of characteristic of avoiding attachment style. Um, often, too, I, I think I want a couple qualifiers. One, you can change your attachment style. It's usually correlated to your early childhood experience. Uh, anxious, you might be like the person who chases constantly over texts. If you haven't heard back from them, you feel the need to follow up and follow up. And you kind of maybe have an internal belief that you're too much or you're too needy. Um, and secure, the definition of it is that my partner's needs matter as much as my own. So not more than my own, which would be more anxious style, not less than my own, which would be more avoidance. So what attachment theory really sort of informs us is about is you might be like, oh, I identify with more of that, or I identify with more of that. Um, but you're not like a stagnant, you know, attachment style. You can change it. And that's why someone can go from being anxious. Hey, I really like this person. I can't wait to finally go on a date with them. Then you get a date with them. They tell you they like you. And you're like, actually, eh. you know, you pivot and you kind of go back. Like I got you, but I wasn't really expecting to get you. So now that I got you, I don't really want you. And I don't know. I can certainly relate. I've done that. I've pivoted between all of them. It can depend on who you're in a relationship with. Um, you could think too, like the, why it's so easy to pivot between anxious and avoidant is because they're both insecure attachment styles. So you don't actually have to become secure. You just pivot between the different alternate um, options, I guess you could call them, uh, but you never become secure. So it's easy to switch between them. Uh, and you can heal them. I think that's the most important thing is we can all learn how to create secure, safe, loving relationships. And it all requires us to have the awareness of what our behaviors are, how we react to different people, different ways of dating and relating. And then what is the tool or choice that I'd like to make to create the type of relationship I ultimately want, which ooh, those are like brave new scripts, brave new ways of being, um, you know, I just wanted to take a short moment to let you know that we have a new yoga and meditation series coming up called Dealing with Difficult Emotions. In this series, we explore anger, sadness, frustration, fear, and worry. When we understand where our emotions are coming from, we can move through them with a lot more ease and clarity. Take our free quiz to find out how well you deal with your emotions. Link will be in the show notes. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's also great to know that like within, let's say, cause I'm definitely the, the more anxious, um, type and within that I've really, within learning about the boundaries, I'm like, when I put my, like, not even to do with me and my partner, like, um, let's say I'm anxious about at the moment we've got to find a new home. So if I'm anxious about that putting that anxiety out and trying to fix it is just not like fair on him and so I really try and um yeah see that pattern of behavior in not just how I relate with him but how I relate to other things because mm -hmm. yeah just I we we talked about it the other day and 
it's funny because I said, because I'm so often like this in terms of like, this is what's going through my head. I'm like creating this crazy situation that we're never going to find a home. And, you know, we'll have to go back to the UK and I don't want to go back to the UK, all this stuff. That when I'm saying it, it doesn't feel that anxious. It's just like, this is, this is me just sharing how I feel. Mm-hmm. But because my partner's not like that at all, he's like, it's like a bomb. It's like, oh my God, the worst thing ever has happened. Whereas I don't think it's that bad. Like, I'm like, oh, this, you know, we just got to fix it. I'm not thinking doom and gloom. But because it's so different to how he relates, he sees it as like, oh my God, this is like, yeah, a bomb going off. A lot. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating, right? Like when I think about my relationship with Kylie, I'm certainly the one who's more prone to anxiety. She's more prone to avoidance. and, you know, if I was in a circumstance like yours, uh, I'd probably be the one expressing more of the fear. Uh, but the expression of what's going on in the internal experience is like you're listening to your anxiety and then, you know, using your tools and your awareness to bring forward what you might have held on to, right, that you might have never shared. And so, the act of expressing anxiety doesn't make one an anxious attachment style. Like that's very secure of you to share it for someone else. When someone shares a feeling, this is probably more conditioned in men is as soon as we hear someone's feeling or distress, uh, we're like, fix it. How do I fix that thing? How do I make it? So you're not experiencing that, you know, we're like go into linear, go and, and uh, execute mode. I remember my dad saying to me when I was, far too old to tell me this. He should have told me way younger. It would have saved me a lot of frustrating conversations. But he was like, next time your partner is expressing something, ask if she'd just like you to listen or fix it. And I was like, what? So then I remember being like, would you like me to listen or help solve this? And she was like, what? Oh, uh, well, I'd like you to just listen. And I was like, oh, well, this is great. Like, I don't have to go into problem solving mode. I don't. And I was like, dad, why didn't you tell me that when I was like 16? That would save me so much. But when we previously maybe had to caretake other people's emotional experience, hearing something as simple as I'm anxious about finding a place, uh, this is what's coming up for me. And the other person being like, whoa, even though that isn't a whoa, it feels like a big thing because they're like, hey, when mom had emotion or dad had emotion or sister or whatever, I felt like I had to fix it. So one of my strategies of never having to carry other people's stuff is I just don't get open to other people's stuff or I react to their stuff so that I can close down, which would be very much more of an avoidant style of attachment, Um, which is really like when I'm open to your needs, they become mine and I don't know, I get lost in them. So an anxious person, or we might say codependent, would be like, your needs become mine. And and so I love that. I'm going to swallow up your needs and be valuable in your life. And an avoidant person might be like, I just won't even hear your needs or I'll run from them because I don't know how to hold on to me and your needs at the same time, if that makes sense. Totally. And I think just going back to something that you said earlier, what's so beautiful is all of this can change. But I do think you have to get to a place where you're not telling yourself these stories that you are a certain way. And I get, I'm really careful now that I don't do that. Like I, yeah, I used to create these stories and literally say to people, yeah, I have a thing, I have an issue with 
xyz and that became who i was and now it's like no you can completely change these things yeah even to think when someone says i'm too much or i'm too needy that's often an internal dialogue that we have uh even in that you know like you're not too much you're human you have needs now often when we don't know how to take responsibility for our own feelings or they can feel overwhelming we will put them on other people you know you might think of, of in dating a lot of people will say you know this is just who i am this is just how i am which is really not taking responsibility for what might be bulldozy oversharing energy so this idea i can be a lot but this is just who i am this is the deal uh, in that is sort of a expectation that likely people will run. It's like, I want to just display this sort of assertiveness and aggressiveness. It certainly makes it so you're heard, which gives validation. And, but the other side of it is it continues to validate the story. When, when I share something that someone hasn't earned the right to hear yet, I'm really breaking my own boundary, which is I'm, I'm breaking the relational boundary in that the boundary of the relationship is we don't have the rapport for you to hear about this thing about me yet. And because I believe I'm too much, I'm going to be too much. And in doing that, you're probably not going to want to hold the thing I'm asking you to hold that I don't know how to hold. And so whenever anyone's sort of navigating that space of oversharing, I'm always like, just hold it. Because what you'll do is you'll increase your capacity. What it is, is you'll learn how to self-regulate. You won't seek other, like anxious people tend to try to regulate through another human. That's how they find regulation. Avoiding people tend to be very internally, right? They're very internally regulated, but they don't know how to also co-regulate. So this like, it's important. All of us need other people to be able to, I mean, we're a relational being. Literally like if I'm in a stasis of, if I'm in a state of calm and my partner is elevated, me staying in a state of calm actually offers this unconscious and conscious space. It might be totally disruptive to them because they're like, I've never been in conflict before. Like what? I remember I dated this girl who's like, I just don't understand why you don't get really mad. And I was like, I don't know. Am I supposed to? Like, this feels weird. And she was like, well, I just feel like if we fought, then we could have makeup sex after. And I'm like, well, can't we just have sex, like good sex without having to fight? She was like, well, have you ever thrown something when you're fighting? And I'm like, no. And I was like, this is weird. I feel like I'm like in this state of balance is like, there's something, should I throw shit? I don't want to throw shit. Um, but it was really fascinating because it was like, it was so abnormal for her experience for me to not be completely elevated for me to just be like, oh yeah, let's talk about this thing. Um, and so we could feel so foreign, you know, when we're in a state of someone else being balanced and us not used to that, we might even find that very unattractive. Because we're like, ah, I really like the chaos because the chaos has been confused with connection. And then when we meet someone who's pretty calm, we're like, ah, they're not hot though. Even though they might be so hot, we don't know. We're like, hmm, there's a, miss there's a connection missing uh, because we haven't learned how to fall in love with calm. You know, I think love really is reliability, you know, it's dependability, but it's not reliability at the cost of self. That's where we start to not respect our partner. And then, I mean, we don't want to bang someone we don't respect. That example that you just said, does that relate to trauma bonding? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it would. It would because we're in that space where we're sort of like our fire 
really just, you might think of like when people talk about the word twin flame, you know, I think a lot of the time we sort of spiritually bypass uh, soulmate dysfunction. Or we're like, but we're twin flames or but we're soulmates. It's like, but you're skipping reality, but you're missing red flags, but, but, but. Um, You know, I know someone who can never be in a, they're never in a relationship with their twin flames. So they're always single, but their twin flames always in relationship. And so they're like, but they're my twin flame. I'm like, that story is just ruining everything. It's just a story you've created. Someone taught you. It doesn't mean the connection is not significant. But what happens if your soulmate or your twin flame is actually teaching you to walk on from dysfunction, to walk forward into something else? What a gift that twin flame is or that soulmate is. Um, it's also just sort of dating in a very scarce mindset uh, as opposed to being like, hey, there's lots of soulmates. There's lots of twin flames and they're all part of our journey. Uh, that idea of trauma bonding, though, yes, very heightened uh, nervous systems, very, very interconnected in our dysfunction um, and, and really sort of forgetting when we're in that elevated state, you could also think of it like, hey, we get in these big fights. I don't really feel like you choose me. Maybe you cheat on me. Maybe you lie to me. And um, whenever we get into these big fights, we then have sex. So then I treat this feeling of rejection and abandonment with arousal. So then it comes down, I calm down, and then I experience again the chaos of not being chosen. And so really we're, in, we're using sex or arousal as a way of treating uh, rejection and abandonment. It's much like any drug, you know? Um, and, and just as addictive, of course, just as addictive, you know, and it's no healthier, you know, you choose MDMA or you choose uh, disconnected kind of lingos. They're both, they're both fueled to the fire. So I think this links quite well to, because uh, I actually asked my um, IG audience what they'd want to ask you. And someone said, like, why do I, why do I go for the same, like, unhealthy um relationship like always choosing people with addictions or and i assume that also relates to to trauma bonding yeah you know the first part is usually we choose it because it's been modeled for us you know it's not like you know if we were just objectively talking about it and i said hey i'm attracted to these types of people what should i do i mean i'd say 99.999% of people would say stop choosing them right like you're choosing these people who are not good for you. So if it's our friend, we can give that advice, which I think is true of so many things in our life, right? It's like, uh, I'm great at telling someone what to do, but when I have to do it, that's where it's really challenging. So knowing that that changing usually is about creating a whole different program. You know, if I'm in these states where I'm choosing unavailable people or totally unhealthy people, I still have to ask myself, like, why am I a good match for them? What is my collection of behaviors and patterns that participate in the story? If we're just simply talking about it, we'd say, well, if you make a different choice, simply put, you'll have a different life. Like that's, so if you keep choosing the same thing, you're missing some really brilliant information that's in the choice and usually in the pain of the, of the choice, like the outcome. And so we're not, if we're not willing to go in to what we're learning in our pain, what we're learning in our loss, what we're learning in rejection or abandonment, uh, we're never going to change our choices. If we keep anesthetizing that pain with a new relationship, a drug, an addiction, anything else, 
um, Instagram, they can all be treatments to not be within myself. But if I do the work, if I finally say, okay, never again, never again, am I going to choose this? And sometimes it takes, it often takes deep pain to make that choice. It doesn't have to, you know, I think so many of us, and this was true for me, is I waited till I had to do things instead of just choosing, you know, which is such an irony, right? It's like, you know, something's wrong, you do it. And then you get the outcome that, you know, you're going to fucking get because you've done it before. And when I started to really explore, okay, where is, where's the, where should I have taken a left where I took a right? And you start to see the red flags are so much obvious, so much more obvious earlier and earlier in the decision tree till you get to a place where, you know, it's kind of like when you think about something like Tinder or Bumble, I could give two people the exact same location, the exact same program, the exact same pool of people. And one person will end up in relationship with dysfunctional people and the other person will never even meet them or chat with them. And so it shows you that what one person codes as a red flag, the other person might code as healthy, normal behavior. Um, and so we just need to recognize where earlier are we missing these like really important pieces of information that like when someone who's used to healthy relating gets matched with someone and their way of interacting, they pick up something off of it that they're like, no. Nah. And they're also likely not like, hey, this person swiped right to me. So I can't wait. I've already fallen in love with the story and the idea and we can't separate from the truth. So, you know, when someone asks like, why do I do that thing? My first thought is because you were taught to, because it's just a pattern of behaviors that you learned. How do you change it? Well, you explore what is there. What are the patterns? Where did they start? Why did they start? What is the actual desire you want? Because if you say, I really want a healthy relationship, I really want love that shows up and is reliable, but you're not choosing that, then you haven't made the desire important enough to you. The desire has, you have to find something that matters to you more than your dysfunction, more than your addictions, something that moves you enough. You know, like when I finally was so interested in learning about relationship and started to bring it to the world, like what I was thinking, I knew that I couldn't write about something that I wasn't doing. In a lot of ways, my work became a level of accountability for me. And so for someone wishing to create a beautiful, loving relationship, they really have to make that desire more important than the temporary soothing that a warm body provides. You know, if you really want a deep connected relationship and you're only choosing casual relationships, there's no judgment. I'm not moralizing. I could care less what people choose. Just be authentic in your choice. Be real in your choice. If what you're choosing is separate from what you say you want to choose, then you know there's usually an unconscious belief or unhealed thing that's operating below the ether of, of your conscious mind. Um, and I think we've all experienced that. So, you know, be gracious with yourself, but also fucking own that shit and change, you know, change, finally change. Yeah, and I think to me, that's where the self-worth piece comes in so well. It was like such a realiza realization for me that, that that desire and want, I needed to go back to me and, and, and feel like I loved myself and like I, that I had my own back. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think that's such a cool way to put it as well. It's like, I've got my own back and I'm my own best friend and I wouldn't want to put my best friend in a situation that's, unhealthy 
um, and doesn't meet my my standards. Um, so yeah, I think um, yeah, that was just a everything you just said then was just such a light bulb moment for me of like in my experience it's been such a self-worth piece yeah it would change everything you know if I looked at every single one of my choices and I said is this moving me towards who I want to be or is it keeping me the same or bringing me down if I chose only who I want this choice is moving me towards who I want to be I would be who I want to be in that moment that I make the choice and so it's like you can have low self-worth in one moment. And then I literally can make a choice that says I matter to me and I have high self-worth. And so it's like this collection of choices and rituals. You know, when we talk about self-love, people are like, it's bubble baths and chocolate and whatever. And it is all those things. Sure. But it really is about a group uh, of habits and rituals that are reinforcing that you matter to you. If you make a choice that you don't matter to yourself. You're being informed by that. There's no point in shaming it. But if you make that choice again, it's not a mistake. It's now actually a choice because you've learned from it. And that's why I made a rule in my own life that I would always live by my highest level of knowledge, that as soon as I learned something, it was a standard in my life that I had to change, that I had to implement this very thing that I just learned. When I, the reason I did that is I, I recognized that I had so many life experiences that I hadn't honored yet. So many younger versions of myself that I just exiled and, and didn't really take responsibility for the lesson that they learned and I would have learned through the pain that I'd gone through. And so I started to see that this was this real way of letting go of my pain was by implementing what I learned from it. And it's this really beautiful sort of alchemical process where you're like, Oh, when you expand and become, you implement a skill or a boundary or, or a, a knowing, you just be, take up more space, you become more powerful, and you honor the younger version of yourself who fucked up, who didn't know. But what a gift that is to say, thank you, I don't regret that because now it's changing my life. Yeah, and within that also, I feel like... Um to go back to that question that this person asked once you start putting in those self-worth pieces you that the like the idea of the law of attraction you are going to attract someone who's more worthy of you and your standards that's definitely what yeah. like um uh, yeah what I've seen and, and what I feel I see time and time again that idea of magnetism and um yeah yeah, for, you know, it's interesting because for some people, they'll go, ah, law of attraction, the secret, whatever it might be, the um, abundance, creation, and they're like, eh, that's just too hokey pokey. And it's like, sure, like if you're not into the woo, fine, here's the scientific version of that. If you, I mean, the science of optimism is a perfect example of this or the science of luck. It's like if people believe they're unlucky, they will have unlucky outcomes. This is shown in research. They studied unlucky people versus lucky people. They taught unlucky people what lucky people do, and they became lucky. Because really, ultimately, what optimists do is they look for opportunity. They look for possibility. They're waking up every morning believing in miracles. When you're waking up and walking through the world, recognizing that anything you want can be brought towards you, you'll start to see it that way. It's kind of like when they study people who are depressed they'll miss when someone wishes them a happy birthday, when they actually matter to people because their mind is framed in a way that they're looking for that information. 
And of course, we've all experienced moments like that when we're in lows and we just can't seem to find the way out till we have this moment of awareness where maybe the first thing we have gratitude for is a blade of grass or a butterfly or a grasshopper or whatever it is. And we just like connect to something, something that's hopeful. And so when you start to implement choices that say, I believe that what I want relationally is possible, you'll be moving towards that. Like if I'm operating in this level of choice where I'm like kicking ass, choosing things that are all about, you know, moving towards what I want. If I meet somebody who's not honoring that or doesn't fit that same level, you could say, well, vibrationally, they're not a match. Sure. Vibrationally, they're not a match, but just in general, they're not a match. Like just by a pure scientific choice, they're not a match because if I'm choosing these things, and I have high self-worth and I get around someone who treats me shitty, disrespects me, isn't true to their word. And I treat myself well, I respect myself and I'm true to my word. I won't even take a second to consider them anymore. I'm like, no, bye. Because I also value myself so much that being chosen isn't the determinant of who I am. You know, if we go around dating, waiting for someone to finally choose us, we're really dating from a, a wounded place. And what a responsibility that is. If you choose me, then I love me. If you don't, then I don't. Well, I don't want to choose someone who their love for themselves depends on my choice of them. That means our relationship is a prison. It's a prison where I have to stay so you love you, which, I mean, I can certainly say I've been in a relationship like that. I think we're all taught to be in a relationship like that. We're all taught to place our worth in our relational status and, and you know, if someone chooses you, then at least there's evidence that you're worthy of being chosen. Look how much value we place on that in this world. Um, and when you stop placing your value in that, then all of a sudden you're able to choose relationship from this very autonomous, sovereign place. It says, I choose you because I'm going to increase the value of your life and you're going to increase the value of mine. If I lost you, I would be devastated, but I'd still be okay. That sounds so unromantic, right? Like what, what romantic movies like? If I lost you, I'd actually be okay, but I'd be very hurt and I would grieve it. And like, I'm sorry, what? Like, you're supposed to be devastated and I'm supposed to complete you. Now, if someone said you complete me, I'd be like, oh, God, get out of here. I don't want to complete you. Like, you're whole, I'm whole. Let's build something completely different together. You know, it's such a different way of thinking about it. It was certainly, a, I would have never said that 15 years ago. Yeah, and there's such unhealthy language that we learn and we don't even realize it's destructive. Like I remember I used to say, I don't know what I'd do without you. Thinking that was romantic and actually my partner found it very trapping and I didn't realize until mm. years later that, they, that, as you said, that prison, like I was putting him in a prison. Um, and something, um, I had a moment with my uh, partner the other day that, he said something and I was like, that's not romantic. But then I was like, no, this is actually such a cool thing. We have spent a lot of time together in, in, in Bali. You kind of end up in this bubble. And um, we spent a bit of time apart. And uh, I came back and I was like, did you miss me? Did you like all of that stuff? And he was like, do you know what? I had a really, really great time on my own. And I was like, yeah. as much as without like, like more than when I'm there. And he was like, I would say equal. And I was like, huh. And I had to like stop myself from reacting. And I listened to him. And what he said was, 
I value my time and I love myself so much and I think I'm great to be with just on my own so by me saying that that being with you is of equal um, uh, mm. enjoyment that's a huge compliment to you and at first I'm like oh but oh. that's like you know in my head again like what we've been taught that's arrogant and I was like no that's so beautiful he's saying he values his time on his own as much as he values his time with me because he loves himself so much and that's so great and I want to be with someone like that yeah I remember Kai asking me did you miss me and I was like I missed you and then there were moments where I didn't you know because like there's, of course, when she's away on a trip, I'm like, oh, I wonder how she's doing or, you know, I miss whatever. But like, I'm usually out with Carl, my dog, our dog going for a walk or doing something like I'm no less because she's not there. But, you know, what a beautiful thing that we can enrich one another's lives. And I totally agree. You know, it's so fascinating how our mind wants to say, well, that's not love or that's not whatever. Um, but when you value your own time, you'll value your partner's own time. You know, I remember working with this couple once where she was very triggered that her partner, they'd been married for a long time, had kids, and he just discovered like himself again. And he was out mountain biking and doing all these things. And she felt abandoned and upset. And when we were working together, I remember her just having this awareness like, oh, I'm just jealous that he's choosing himself because I'm not. Like she had this mirror of like, oh, I resent that he's in a way she felt like he was redefining the terms of the relationship, which he certainly was, because like you could wake up at any moment in a relationship and realize you're codependent or realize that you forgot about you. I think that's often what wakes us up is we're like, oh, my God, there there's so much more to life. And like, I feel like I miss me. I feel like I never really honored myself. And so you wake up in the relationship and you begin to tell the truth. and what a gift that is to the relationship. It either fractures it or it deepens it. But, you know, as um, I think it's from the book Untamed with Glennon Doyle, where Elizabeth Gilbert says to her about her divorce, like there's no such thing as one-way liberation. That if I am liberated, you are too, even if you don't know it yet. And that's, I think, a hard thing as humans. Is, you know, when we say, this isn't working for me, or I miss you, or I feel like I've taken you for granted, or I feel like, We've taken each other for granted. There's a truth that's brought forward that really says this relationship is sacred to me. Um, this is how much it matters to me that I'm going to tell you the truth and we're going to share the truth and then we're going to do something with the truth. I mean, I would always rather be in a relationship that honors truth over everything. I mean, there's, there's nothing else I would want. I can't, I can't now ever live in a world where we're not actually just honoring what is real. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Okay, I have one more, just looking at the time, I have one more um, question that someone asked and I think it relates so well to um, something I heard you say about your breakup actually. Um, they basically said like, how do I let go of someone not choosing me and I think they they had chosen them at one point and then timings didn't work and and this person's like struggling to let go and it and then I was listening to your podcast where you say grief is like a beautiful thing and it's a yeah what you learn from that grief 
which again goes to like you know don't don't deprive anyone of their rock bottoms but I don't know whether that links at all of that um with that with that question the idea of that grief actually being a beautiful process yeah I mean not being chosen is such a an interesting thing to go into because you know there's something correlated to my worth if I'm left completely devastated because you didn't choose me and you know, this is why I think it's important to, it's important to explore wherever, if someone leaves you, that you are left completely devastated, right? Which is not to dismiss, you know, I've been through breakups that are certainly devastating. But in the most recent one I went through, my self-worth didn't leave. Like I knew that I was whole and complete as the relationship completed. And it's because previously I'd explored like, well, if someone left me and I was left devastated, then what did I give them that they take? And what do they leave? And I'm like, here that is of me. And then I'm left with a hole, a space that they were probably filling anyways before. So in the space that they've now left where they've taken something, there's actually a part of me that I can take back. And you know, we're often taught to sort of give away parts of ourselves to give other people value. And even in this idea, if you choose me, then I'm valuable. Well, if someone leaves and there's now a gap there, then I have to figure out what choosing me really means. Because if I don't choose me, I'm waiting for someone else to do that. And as soon as someone shows up with the space for that wound, we'll just be in a trauma bond, you know, as you said before. We won't be connected from an authentic place. We'll be connected from a masking of each other's wounding, which of course is an invitation to heal that. So when we're sort of like, I'm struggling to let go. The first thing I always think about is like, when we're going through breakups is you have to prioritize your healing. That could be the first time you've ever prioritized yourself. And so a lot of times people will say, well, what you're asking is selfish. And I'm like, yes, it might feel like it's selfish because you were taught that anything that's self-focused is selfish. But you have to be able to fill your own cup first. You have to be able to prioritize yourself first. Wherever you're resentful, guaranteed it's because you're not prioritizing yourself. That something else or something else is a mirror that you don't honor yourself. So when I'm trying to let go of something, I would first say, if you had let them go, what would you do? Like if you knew you had moved on, what type of behaviors would you have? Where would you go? How would you be? And you could literally just start doing those things. The other side is if you're prioritizing your healing, then you'd say, okay, well, if following them on Instagram or wherever you might check out their shit is tripping you up, hurting you, dis just disrupting your day, even seeing them see something of yours. Cause of course we're like, who viewed it? Did they view it? Oh, you know, we're like devastated. It's like, you have to block them. You have to mute them. You have to do whatever is about prioritizing your healing. And in doing that, when you start to prioritize your healing, when you start to pick up the pieces of you that, that you gave away in relationship, which usually I find, as you were saying about grief, it's usually like really deep grief is not just new grief. You know, I found when Kylie and I broke up, there was so much grief that I'd never really gone deeply into from previous relationships ending. And it was the first time I ever navigated a breakup completely sober, you know? So before I might be able to anesthetize a bit of the pain with a beer or something, 
or read or whatever it is. And this was a time when I just didn't um, and I couldn't, you know, it was like, I, I finally was feeling everything I'd never allowed myself to fully feel. So in a lot of ways, the grief was a gateway further and deeper into myself. You know, and, and that's where I started to see, as I was saying earlier, you know, we often try to save people from feelings we don't know the value of. And so when someone's going through a breakup or loss or whatever it might be, I never try to save them from it. I might say, hey, I'm sorry you're going through that. Um, I'm sorry to hear that's happened, but I'm never sorry that someone's going through something, um, which I know can sound kind of weird, but I always know there's like a gift in my grief. And so there's something within their space. So I don't try to rob them from it. I might say, what do you need from me as you're navigating this? And so they can tell me, but I'm not like trying to rescue them from a feeling, but I'm here as a life raft if they need me, which is, I think is very different. Um, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting space to be in because how you let go, you know, a lot of people say time heals everything. And I'm like, not if you don't do anything, you know, <laughs> time just goes by and maybe you hide what you're, you're supposed to process. But I feel like the pain always comes forward eventually. You know, if we, whatever is not navigated makes its way back around. Yeah, I think there's something really um, beautiful in that I just want to pick up on, which is the idea that um, I, I think it's very hard for people as well. Like, let's say on the flip side, you have someone who is devastated by a decision you've made within a relationship. And I've heard this a few times from my audience that there's like a huge amount of guilt that is then felt. Mm -hmm. But actually what you just said was this like beautiful permission to release that guilt because it's it's up to them to work out why they are devastated. And it's, you know, again, it's like you can take responsibility for your um, your stuff that you're going through. Um, and of course, do it in the most kind and compassionate way for someone maybe that you're, you've been in a relationship with. But I don't know, that just really actually made me well up with tears. Like I feel like often people feel so much guilt and what you just said gave me that almost like me some permission to like let go of some guilt. When you might think too, like for one person, they're exploring what dev being devastated means for them, right? And for the other person, they're actually exploring uh, what is in disappointment. Like they're exploring, how do I increase my capacity to not correlate my worth to someone else being disappointed in me? You know, because guilt can be, you know, a natural response to something and also hurting someone else's feelings by a choice that is truthful for you, you might feel guilty and then it might make us do something, go back, rescind, whatever it might be. But we actually have to learn how to increase our capacity to hold the guilt so that it doesn't create a behavior that causes more self-abandonment. So I might explore, uh, because I've certainly, certainly been on that side of like, what does it mean for me to be a disappointment to someone else, but be in my truth? Like, what does it mean to be devastated, but be in your truth? Uh, well, you were talking at the very beginning about this sort of complexity of being excited and, and really sad at the same time. 
So you might be really excited about what's possible now that you've chosen yourself for the first time at the cost of someone else's feelings instead of at the cost of your own. So in doing that, you might be really excited, but you also might be really sad about the fact that you've never chosen yourself, about the fact that you've always allowed disappointment to shape your life um, or fear of being devastated to shape your life that now in this moment, you have the opportunity to hold on to yourself and someone else have their experience too, and that not mean anything about us. And I mean, gosh, that is such hard work to do because one feels like the villain and the other person feels like the victim. But again, both of those are roles. So we might look at how do we source power from being in those positions? How do we source being stuck by being in those positions. And so our real work is to separate ourselves from the identity and to just keep coming back to like, is this choice moving me towards the life I wanna create and who I wanna be? And if it's moving you towards it, it's moving the other person towards it. Um, they just might not know yet. Like if you're unstuck or getting unstuck or like you're telling a truth devastates a relationship, or devastates an experience, um, it is freeing both of you. You know, and I think that's a real, you know, it's like when we tell the truth in a relationship, it either breaks it or it deepens it. And I think that's hard for us to understand. Like if I don't want a relationship to end, I might never share anything that might end it. Well, that's the very thing that likely deepens it. It, it certainly can't stay in the same stagnant position because that's not how the universe works. That's not how, that's not how physics works. So something's going to always be changing and moving. And if it's not the truth of the relationship, it'll be us getting ill, us hiding our truth, but you can't hide it. It always comes out. It comes out in inflammation and sickness. It comes out in all these red flags that our body's saying like, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. You know, it's like when someone says, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm this, I'm that. Well, we've taught people that there's something wrong with you if you have those feelings. And I think like, what happens if you said, there's something right with me? Like if your environment is in itself anxiety inducing or depressive, then change your environment, not numb the brilliance of who you are. And I think we've done a very disservice in saying that good feelings mean there's something good with you and everything's working in your life. And if you have sad feelings or grief or anger or whatever, then there's something wrong with you as opposed to like, holy shit, you're being informed by some of the most evolution has brilliantly provided you with this barometer to your life. And someone's going to tell you not to pay attention. And I'm like, well, if you pay attention, what's it going to ask you to do? probably change your life, probably have some hard conversations, probably reclaim who you are, probably pursue your passions, probably, probably leave something that society says you got to stay in. And that could be a job. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. It could actually just be being silent and not sharing your truth. It could be something that simple that when you finally speak it, everyone's freed. And I think, you know, that's what we're all sort of moving towards. I hope. What a powerful way to, I think, come to a close for our, our podcast. Um, Mark, I feel like I could talk to you for a 
like forever. I had all these, all these questions I was going to ask and I didn't really get to, well, I got to all of them in other beautiful ways, you know, like just so easy to, to chat with you. And I really appreciate all, all the work that you do. And I'd love actually to know what you're excited about for the future within either work or yeah, personal life or yeah, I appreciate that. Um, first off, thanks for having me. Thanks for trusting me to, you know, share with your people and, and um, with the platform you've built. I really am, am grateful and honored. Um, and of course, open to uh, a return on any questions that we might not have gotten to. Um, what am I excited about? Well, you know, I think amidst everything that's going on in the world, I'm, I, I'm excited about what is being birthed from this because something is. Um, hopefully I'll be alive for that time. Um, not to say that I'm planning on going anywhere, but I just don't know the time that will unfold everything that's unfolding. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I'm also, I'm sort of holding two poles there because there's certainly grief in there. Um, and I'm excited about Mind. I just created that app, which has been really fun. I co-founded it with a friend named Aaron Albert. And it's really about democratizing emotional, relational health and like giving people access to learn about all these things that they want to learn about um, and, and a community to be able to do that in. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I'm just excited about the continued evolution of my work. So, uh, yeah. Me too. And yeah, we'll, um, we'll link mind and um uh, some of your courses that we've mentioned um in the show notes as well but thank, thank you, you so so much it's been um like yeah such a highlight so thank you very very much thank you i appreciate it i just want to take this opportunity to let you know about my move and inspire membership my online membership is for those ready to commit to moving and meditating regularly it's not just about exercise it's about a way of life and it's about empowering your mindset with accessible tools for you to feel like you can embrace everything the world has to offer you. Every month we give you at least four new yoga flows. We also give you access to our archive of over 100 videos suitable for every level. This includes vinyasa yoga, yin yoga, yoga and live music, hit, strength training and more. We give you two new meditations a month to help you inspire a sense of calm and focus. We also have an archive of over 50 meditations exploring topics such as letting go, gratitude, acceptance, learning to surrender, imposter syndrome, compassion and kindness. Our community provides a private space for members to share their stories, recommend podcasts, books and inspiring quotes. If a membership isn't quite right for you, then head to my website sophiedear.com for courses such as the 14 day challenge, yoga for beginners and self-growth workshops. There's all sorts of free stuff up for grabs too, so just check out the link on the homepage. We would love to have you as part of the tribe, so check out the links in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspirational tips, please head to www.sophiedear.com and sign up for my weekly wellness letter.